This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern, followed by replays throughout the week. The purpose of my show is to explore how work would change in times of globalization and digitization. I want to understand the work of tomorrow. Now, patrolling our streets, responding to emergency calls, investigating crimes, police officers play a central role in any city or township. Police departments provide employment to over 1 million Americans. Most of them are sworn officers, but many other job types exist as well. There are many police-related topics that have been discussed in the media over the last few years, including complex issues such as racial profiling, school shootings, or terrorist attacks. Since my show is called Work of Tomorrow, however, I want to take a more operational view to the role of our police force. Specifically, I would like to talk about the actual work that police officers perform and the management of a police department. Moreover, I would like to find out how technology is changing the way that a frontline officer goes about his or her work every day. To help me understand this topic, I have two wonderful guests in the first half of the show. Uh, Scott Thompson is the chief of the Camden County Police Department. And then in the second half of the show, I will talk with Brian McDonald, a CEO of Predpol, a market leader in predictive policing. At this point, welcome, Scott. Thank you. Scott, you joined the police department almost 30 years ago. In your, in your first year of service, what did a typical day on the job look like for you? Well, a typical day uh, was really driven by the radio. Uh, the, the workflow that came in, it was um, in large part uh, unmanaged. It was as, as the work was created, it was distributed out, and we would generally run from call to call to call. Um, you know, I... As you can imagine, that wasn't the most efficient or effective way. Uh, we'd often find ourselves at, at times not being able to respond to uh, even emergency calls uh, that, that would require our immediate assistance. Uh, it would often at times take us uh, unacceptable amount of times to, to get there, particularly if you were the person calling. I find it interesting, and as an operations uh, professor, I, I'm delighting in the fact that you start with a workflow, right? I mean, there's, there's some sort of a process in place. If I think about back then, a typical day on the job, how much of that time was it the officer chasing, responding to a call versus how much proactively patrolling, mm -hmm. in some sense waiting for something mm -hmm. to happen, but more at like your own discretion? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think really within that question is gets to be what the biggest challenge in most police departments, particularly um, city police departments deal with is that it, it varies and it varies greatly. And a lot of it can be contingent upon the uh, the officer themselves, the supervisor they have. Um, and it, it, there's too many variables that are that, that are left for uh, independent determinations to really put forth the type of 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 um, management that an executive needs to run an organization. So when you would start to look at what officers do kind of in the aggregate, you get this sense that we're busy. And if you just listen to the radio, it never stops. So uh, when you start to talk about workflows, um, a lot of it would be dependent upon the officer and how well they manage their day. And you also got to remember that if there are for, let's just say for argument's sake, that we have 10 officers that are assigned to a district 
And if there are a hundred calls that are coming in and you have um, three or four officers that are following the policies of the organization and doing what they should be doing, uh, they could invariably end up handling the majority of the call. Kind of Pareto's law takes over in that an unmanaged force, you'll get 20% of your workforce will, will be doing what they're supposed to be doing, but doing essentially 80% of the work. So um, what you can find or what, what we find over time is that when these, these variations are allowed to exist, you, you really get an inconsistent ability to shape outcomes within neighborhoods. So now when we look at where policing is going in the future and we, we, we know that our objective really is to build relationships and how we build relationships is through uh, being able to become legitimate, which means we need to have human contact. Well, then those moments can't be predicated upon moments of enforcement or moments of crisis, which means we need to manufacture time so that the officer can be responsibly in neighborhoods interacting in a way that's non-official. And through that, what we have found in our most challenged neighborhoods is that is probably the most determining factor to reducing criminal incidents within that area of responsibility as opposed to enforcement. So it's a little bit of a prevention story in the sense that when you patrol an area, patrolling already sounds a little bit like negative distrusting, right? I, I patrol. What you have in mind here is more a form of engagement and, and trust building, I, I hear. Well, I, I think the cure for any really challenged community comes from within. And it's not an outside-in fix. We are not going to arrest our way into safer communities. Um, much like the military has seen in its counterinsurgency operations is that it's not going to go into an extremely destabilized community and capture and kill its way into a safer community. It, you know, to capture the hearts and minds of the people and to empower them to reclaim their neighborhoods really relies upon the guardian figures that are there to act in that type of capacity as opposed to a warrior that's just looking to make arrests or issue summonses. So when we talk about the, the changing of this workflow, we're also looking at culture mm -hmm. and how we change that culture is we change the identity of the officer by the, the metrics that we, we measure and the reward systems internally as well. So no longer do we judge an officer's productivity based upon the number of tickets they're writing or arrests they're making. Rather, we're looking at it more from a, a less quantitative, a more qualitative in how many people are sitting on their front steps? How many kids are riding their bikes in front of their homes? Because we know that those are the tipping points of public safety that make people leave their homes and actually start to reoccupy public space that they had abandoned because we were too busy focused on the punitive outcomes of policing as our metric for success. I want to talk about productivity in a moment, but just learn a little bit more about the Camden County Police Department. Mm -hmm. uh, that department is the successor of the Camden City Police Department. Uh, talk just a little bit, uh, Scott, about your, your department, how many officers there are, and what kind of a, what type of scale of an operations you oversee as a chief. Sure. So we have uh, about 400 sworn officers. Our community is uh, about 11 square miles. 
Uh, we have about 77,000 people in the city of Camden. Uh, one of the things that, that uh, is uh, important to note within the city of Camden is that in cities of 50,000 or larger, uh, it's the poorest in the country. Our per capita income is less than $14,000 a year. Um, we have one of the highest unemployment and poverty rates, uh, not only in the state but in the country as well. Uh, and it's kind of the perfect storm of social inequities. Ninety-six percent of our community is minority. Um, we had a, over the course of decades a major divestment from um, not only the educational systems within uh, within uh, the city, but of uh, a lot of the uh, the major corporations and employers had left. And what we were left with were the drivers of. Uh, of, of, of really uh, the, the, the divestment of, of social communities, which produce symptoms that are crime. And, and again, so when we, were, when we start to look at the community in which we're policing, um, how can we better serve that community? It, it has more to do with police acting as facilitators and conveners than as, uh, than as warriors. Now, speaking about crime statistics, I mean, the FBI uh, ranked uh, Camden as one of the most dangerous cities in terms of crime per capita. You, know, you mentioned other statistics. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that you end up dealing with the mess that failures in politics, the opioid crisis, economics, have really done to your county? They're, they're really outside your control. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of the, the major challenges that you'll hear from police executives in the country is how um, over time, there has been a delegation of mental illness, um, addiction that has been uh, comfortably left at the feet of police. And we are not properly educated or equipped uh, to, to handle those issues, uh, not in a meaningful way. And, I, and think about it from a perspective of the tools that we give a 23, 24-year-old police officer Uh, who generally has a, a high school education. We give them a, a service pistol and a pair of handcuffs and a ticket book, and then we expect them to go with simple solutions to, to solve complex problems. And um, a lot of that has what's led to uh, you know, the unintended consequences of a, of a young police officer not knowing any other way to handle these issues uh, that many times result in um, you know, mass incarceration. Um, a... Uh, Over-enforcement within communities that you know, when – I mean think about it from this perspective, Christian. When you hand somebody that makes $13,000 a year a $250 ticket, that can be life-altering. And when we put young police officers in these positions and we have institutions that don't fully understand and their impact or the, the, the potential negative impact, the unintended consequences of their actions um, and we expect them to – Uh, continue to operate in traditional ways, it's just continually attributing to the cyclical negative deficit that's taking place within within those communities. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tevich, and I have the pleasure of chatting with Scott Thompson, who's the Camden County Police Chief. And uh, Scott already started talking about productivity, and I'm, I'm just curious, Scott, how you measure that. And I, I think... We mentioned a moment ago this challenge that a lot of these crime statistics, which are important outcome, they would be really unfair measures of productivity for you because they're driven so much by, by things that are happening in other parts in society. So as you're looking over your police force, how do you know if your folks are doing a good job or if they are productive, so to say? That's a great question. And, and I think really for us, 
Um, truth be told, it, 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 the light bulb went off for us maybe about five or six years ago. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And when we would look at our crime statistics and our response to violent criminal offenses that occurred, um, we were having very little impact on them. When we changed our our mannerisms, we changed our strategies, we changed our ideology of how we would approach these challenges, and uh, what we have seen through that, the end result of the you know of of where I'm going is we've been able to reduce murder seventy one percent. We've reduced violent crime uh, more than a third within the same community that still has the same socioeconomic and and educational and employment challenges that that exist, um, and. For us, it was – it's not success. It's progress and it was um, looking at our approach and how we operate day in and day out to be able to affect that. So when you hear me use terms like guardian and warrior and our guardians are, are police officers who are not looking to uh, necessarily make arrests or issue summonses, but they're going to be in an area that's extremely destabilized um, and – they're going to operate in a way that empowers people to leave their homes. And for us to do that, what we needed to do was to look at the original workload that we discussed in the beginning of the show that was occupying all of their time. And they were running from call to call to call. And we said, how can we better manage that? Because if we don't ever manage that, they're never going to have time to be guardian figures in neighborhoods doing community policing. So it was really putting a scientific approach and conducting an autopsy upon the workflow to figure out there may be some things that we don't need to respond to or we need to respond in a different way. Maybe every call that comes in doesn't need a gun and a badge showing up at it. There could be a civilian component of this organization that could respond uh, in, 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 in a quicker and sometimes even better fashion. And by putting the workload – under, under that microscope and figuring out the best way to approach that, what we were able to do was manufacture man hours in which we could now look at and say, you know, the reality of it is of a 12-hour of workday, we have about three hours that are unob unobligated. So those 180 minutes, how can we best use them to build relationships within the communities? But if we don't apply this science – that 180 hours or 180 minutes for each officer just varied completely and was completely unmanaged. Lost time is never found again, Benjamin Franklin, I, I think it was said. I, I love the uh, the similarity here. I've done a lot of work in healthcare, and there's a similar thing where, again, doctors have a lot of discretion how they spend their time. But historically, at least, doctors have not been used to being stopwatched. And I've done some studies with stopwatches and documenting what people yeah. do, similar to the, the microscope that you just mentioned. And it just strikes me, you mentioned culture earlier on, Scott. That must be odd for police officers, for both the, the frontline officers and for the management mm -hmm. structure that you oversee, this idea that we stopwatch people like the folks at right. the R R R RCA assembly line. Uh, what was the reaction to police officers that suddenly they, they would have to document what they do? And isn't right. that like 
uncomfortable? Well, I, needless to say, I did not get many Christmas cards in, <laughs> in my first year uh, or first couple of years for that matter. Um, you know, look, uh, in, in like most professions, uh, there's two things that cops don't like. They don't like the way things are and they don't like change. Um, and when you start to put people under that type of uh, intensive supervision and, uh, and scrutiny, it, it gets resisted. Right. But for us, it was there's a moral imperative when the people in your community are being victimized at third world country rates. Um, for us, you know, there were there were many line in the sand moments of small children getting caught in a crossfire. And uh, at the end of the day, I was not going to subjugate my oath of office to protect the community because of the comfort level of, of some people that are maybe in the wrong profession. Um, and we would find that out sooner rather than later. And uh, when we started to do that process and we run the organization much like a FedEx or a UPS, we measure every minute of their day uh, to the point that we have GPS devices on all of our police officers. Uh, in my real-time crime center, in fact, even on my phone, I can pull up and look and see real-time where all of my officers are, what they are doing, um, you know, the days of three or four police officers who uh, grabbing a newspaper and a cup of coffee and disappearing behind some warehouse somewhere, uh, those days are gone. And um, it, it's, it's unconscionable that, that, that they would exist at one point in time. But with the technology, with policy and with leadership, uh, we, we've been able to really get the maximum effort that we can from the finite amount of resources that we've had. And again, it's not – it's not success, but it certainly is progress. T today, Camden's still a very challenged city, but our, uh, we're no longer ranked in the, in, in, as one of the most dangerous cities. Uh, our murder rate, again, is down by 71%. Um, some of these neighborhoods that were once plagued with open-air drug markets and just flagrant criminal activity now actually have people sitting on their front steps and little kids riding their bikes in front of their homes again. And we haven't fixed the poverty problem. But we don't need to be – we can be a poor city but not a violent one. Talk a bit more about the technology. So you mentioned FedEx and UPS and, mm -hmm. and those are companies where, where every, every worker, every truck, everything is tracked all the time by, by, by GPS sensors and other sensors. Right. Is, is that the vision for police that in, in some sense both from a tactical manner to just make sure to deploy the, the police force where it is needed similar to how Uber would display? dispatch an Uber, but also from a feedback, monitoring, management perspective about productivity, is that, is that tracking technology becoming crucial? It is. Uh, it, and it really underpins uh, our ability to, um, to, to continually manufacture time for, for police officers to be in, in, in challenged neighborhoods. Um, you know, what, what's, what we have found is that you know, unlike the UPS or the FedEx, uh, we're just not leaving uh, the station house each and every day with a pretty predictable day. Um, some of the day is is going to be predictable, but we also need to have flexibility to be able to respond to crisis as it as it rapidly unfolds. And by having the proper accounting of our resources at every minute throughout the day. When those critical incidents do occur, whether that's a, um, the report of a, of a child being abducted or an active shooter uh, or somebody committing a robbery in progress, our ability to be able to respond has been significantly enhanced. 
which has not only resulted in a safer environment for the community, but it's also been a safer work environment for the police officer that's responding because now it's no longer just whatever unit answers up on the radio to start moving towards that critical incident into more now today of a, of a coordinated approach in which you can almost look at on a well, – you can look at it on a screen in our real-time crime center of all the, the dots on the map of which are police officers and their cars of responding to the to the dot that's been located as the – the location of the critical incident. So you mentioned building flexibility. So what, what levers do you have to build that flexibility? I mean, again, manufacturing time by taking waste out of the system is, I guess, always a good idea. Uh, how much flexibility do you have to move to, to move the people around in the sense that, I guess, on one hand, it's good to have officers dedicated and focused on their district so that they, they can mm -hmm. they build personal relationships. On the other hand, it, uh, a form of flexibility is, is people just being deployed wherever somebody is needed. So how do you build that flexibility? Where does it come from? Well, th that flexibility really comes from the technology and from leadership. Uh, one thing that we have found in, in, in our, our transformation is that there were three critical components for us to be able to um, shape outcomes. That was it, – it, it was capacity, its flexibility, and its proximity. Capacity in that we are applying scientific management to our workload so that we can um, get the most out of the people that we do have. The flexibility so that, you know, particularly when you're dealing with critical incidents like we are um, or you're, you're taking a longer-term uh, strat strategic approach to trying to fix the problems within a really challenged community, there is no linear progression of a, of a recipe. It's not a paint by numbers. It's not a if you do step one, step two, step three, step four. Um, it would be if I would make a sports analogy, if you were to – we just had the NFL draft. So if you were to run a play and it was successful, how many times in a row could you run that play before the other side, whether it's the criminal element or the like – start to adjust to it. So the flexibility comes in the ability to call audibles, to change the play, to realize that the, the, the strategy and tactic that you were doing with the resources you have may be hitting the point of diminishing returns. And now it's, a, it's time to apply a, a different strategy and tactic. And that comes from proximity, that you can't just necessarily look at a spreadsheet at the end of the week sitting in a corner office and know when to make that call. That type of information comes by looking at at, at, at the information real time when it's coming in uh, and by being out there talking to the workforce, workforce the, the officers that are doing the work and talking to our customers, which is the community and getting the real feedback from them on uh, what we're doing, what we need to do and how we're doing it. With my next guest, I'll talk about predictive policing and the use of big data statistics for the police force. What has been your experience Relying, we talked a lot already about technology. Mm -hmm. Where where is that going in terms of usage of AI, usage of mm -hmm. big data? Is it something that, as an experienced frontline person, you you view with skepticism, or is is that something where you could get another ten percent or like more mm -hmm. more work time from your officers? So I I find that it, it's exciting the future with technology, particularly in policing. Um, I, I think right now with a lot of the the algorithms. Um, for predictive policing, uh, you know, uh, we're far from a finished product. 
Now, one thing that I have found from, from technology is that it can make us smarter. It can make us faster. It can broaden our scope of coverage. Um, but really, the officer conducting the assignment is, is, is still the most important component in the entire equation. So the technology, so long as we're ne- never just overly relying upon that, uh, so long as the technology just informs us in a way in which it's not, it's not the, the foundation upon which everything is built, but it is, it, it's another vital piece of information to be able to help us in that line of, of being more intelligent with, with our resources and what we do. Um, there are some concerns out there with predictive policing, uh, which I think in large part because most of the community is still uh, in large part uninformed. Um, and that's, that's because there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered with regards to uh, uh, the information that's being pulled, how it's being used. And, you know, the, one of the biggest concerns that, that people have, particularly in over-policed communities and communities where, where, where there are disparate amount of crimes, are that there's not disparate amount of enforcement. And because uh, invariably, if you just look at statistics, that would that would provide some folks with a justification for over policing in minority communities. And we have we have seen the polarizing effect of that. And we have seen that. Uh, and, and one thing that I have learned is that militarizing neighborhoods doesn't make them safer. So let's be informed with the information. But let, let's let's allow that to help us make better decisions in uh, understanding the complete picture. But one thing that I think is most important that I have found um, even more so than technology has been the, uh, the, the information and the feedback that I'm able to get from, from our customer base, which is the community. Scott, you have been in this profession for 30 years. Fast forward another 10 years, how will, how will the job change? I think that Uh, we are learning today more so from from the mistakes of yesterday. Uh, I, I think that in the future, um, I think technology and and AI will uh, will be better informed with community consent. I think as long as we move forward with this type of technology, as uh, as as the community is our partners, um, if, you, if we would make a medical analogy, just we cannot just be continually be the doctors that are prescribing to the patient. At some point in time, the patient needs to understand what we're doing and needs to be a part of the solution with us. But, uh, but I see technology as playing a vital role in, um, in utilizing the data that's being created day in and day out to better inform police officers on their actions, unintended actions, and the community as well. And and I think that is what's going to help shape policy and uh, and, and what the police look like uh, in their communities in, in years to come. Says Scott Thompson, the Camden County Police Chief. Uh, thank you so much, Scott. Thank you for what you're doing and what all your officers are doing for keeping us safe. We need to take a short break right now. When we come back, I will welcome my second guest for today. That is Brian McDonald, the CEO of Pretpol, a market leader in predictive policing. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow. I'm Christian Terish, and this is Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM. We'll be right back. Thank you, Christian. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 